You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I have another return guest who I know you guys always enjoy listening to. I've got Mike Novi uh, from Rainforest Junkies. And we're going to talk about kind of whatever comes up. I really don't have too much scripted, but we're going to focus the discussion on red-eyed tree frogs, and we're going to get into some other uh, territory as well. But um, before we get into all that, of course, um, you know, thanks everyone for the nice five-star reviews, Apple Podcast, and uh, I've I've taken to posting a single link in the show description to all the stuff that I normally promote, like the Patreon and whatnot. Uh, it's a link tree, and uh, if you're not familiar with link tree, is it's one link that will lead you guys to basically everything associated with the podcast. Uh, you click on that link, it'll take you to a page that has links to Apple Podcasts, it has Spotify, uh, the hosting site, the excuse me, the hosting site Buzzsprout. And it'll also have links to the Patreon if you want to become a patron. I've got a couple of different tiers on that. And uh, I have the uh, merch store, which is open, of course. There's some pretty cool designs if you guys want to get some merch. And I'm also an affiliate now of uh, In-Situ Ecosystems. So if you're looking to get a vivarium from them, by following the link and making a purchase, you'll get a 10% discount off of that. So check out the link in the link tree. And that'll pretty much take you to everywhere you want to go for the podcast. Uh, I, I found that I was including like five or six links, and I kind of wanted to just do one thing. So uh, Linktree is just a great way to go. Um, you know, just click on it. It'll take you to everywhere, everything that's related to the podcast. So other than that, uh, usual business out of the way. Mike, welcome back. How are you doing? Uh, so far, so good. Pretty good. Uh, yeah, just going to just kicking back and uh getting ready to start our breeding season because uh during covid we really didn't get much done with that because we didn't know how the market was going to go we didn't want to get stuck with a bunch of animals although i think that's gonna it's not going to be as heavy as what we used to do anyways because of the way that the uh the whole economy's kind of collapsing currently anyway so yeah things have gotten uh interesting in the past couple of years it got a little rough, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, as far as supplies, you know, I feel bad for people that are trying to get new caging and all that. That's, that's for sure. Because that's, that's one of the hard parts to get now, especially for the snake and rat people. I don't know if you've heard about that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting as far as getting supplies, getting food items for your, your critters. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's one of those things where it's a little bit of a scary moment. Like how much further is this going to go before it actually levels off? So. Yeah. It's such yeah. a crazy thing. I, I went through it with the snake situation. I'd ordered a cage. Um, actually I ordered a year ago. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I've gotten it since, but I ordered, uh, an animal plastics cage for my female blood Python in, in April of 2021 and I didn't get it till October. I mean, I know they have a long lead time and it was, it was, you know, it was a good product. I was really happy with it. I'm happy I waited, but the, the wait time was just unbelievable. And a lot of the, um, materials that came to the U S from overseas, just, it was like, it, it wasn't happening. I mean, even like it, not to go too off topic, but like at work, we were waiting for a gasket for a freezer and it, it ended up just being on a cargo ship for like six or eight months. And it just never, it just never got here. So it was a really difficult time getting any kind of raw materials. What, what's it been like on the, on the business end? I mean, I know a lot of people kind of went overboard ordering animals and buying animals and whatnot during COVID. Like what's, what's the business aspect in terms of, of selling frogs been like? Uh, it's been, it's been pretty good still. Um, even though we didn't mass breed, we have wholesaled out probably the least amount that we have ever, you know, uh, sold. 
wholesale wise. Uh, as far as like, you know, doing the shows and, um, you know, like an example, like this last weekend, I had the Hamburg and the Cleveland show that I did. And, uh, yeah, I was exhausted after that. I was pretty much a zombie. But uh, the the thing that was really nice is people did still come out. Wasn't as many people, but it seemed like people that were coming out, they already had in their head what they were getting. And uh, I pretty much damn near ran out of everything I had. So people are still buying. Um, I, it might be only because it's just tax return season. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll keep an eye on it. We're going to hope that it's going to keep and, you know, kind of like level off as far as like everybody's like not spending money. Because it's not quite as much as last year or the year before that or the year before that. Tax time, you know, tax time is always really good for sales. But. I mean, it was still decent, you know, and that's, I guess that's where we're kind of at right now. I did notice that a couple of people at the show were saying that sales were down um, compared to the last show. So, yeah, I mean, it is what it is, but uh, I mean, for anybody that's in the retail business with animals, I mean, we're all still fighting the fight of uh, trying to keep that ban away too. So, I know that's a whole other monster in, in and of itself but um correct yeah and, and yes it does stimulate people to buy animals now but again you got to look towards the future and even some of my other friends that breed amphibians they're on kind of on the same page with me like yeah i'm not gonna bass breed because what if and i'm like yeah think of me back in 2010 when i got stuck with over 10,000 animals you know and i was cleaning and feeding them every day but no sales i mean i almost went bankrupt you know, a thousand dollars worth of crickets a week, that that kinda puts you under, you know. That must have been so, rough. Oh, it was, it was. Like I said, I almost went went bankrupt that year. But uh we we survived it, but uh I just don't want to go through it again. I don't think anybody would, you know. So Yeah, things I'm I had I had Phil Goss on uh a while back actually, and we talked about a lot of it and there's a lot of people in the frog world don't really understand how significant that legislation can potentially be. I mean, even like, I mean, I know not, a lot of people were into frogs, also ne not necessarily into other animals as well. And a lot of people think it was like kind of a, a big snake issue, but. It's not. It's, it's all not yeah. animals. I mean, I just got into an argument with this joker on uh, one of the uh, uh, Facebook pages. Uh, he basically, I'm not going to mention his name. I mean, but I, I'm sure anybody who's listening probably knows who he is, um, which. <clears throat> You know, I understand that, you know, there is a lot of fear mongering with different, you know, supposed conspiracy theories. Uh, but anymore, it just seems like those are spoiler alerts. Um, and I, I keep telling people, I said, you know what? I mean, even if it's against snakes and you don't do snakes, vote against it, because once you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. And uh, people just don't want to see it. You know, some people just. Uh, well, I'm not saying. A lot of people, but there are some people that think that it's fear mongering and that it's not going to go anywhere, but it eventually it's going to, you know, nip them right in the behind. So, yeah, well, it's not, what's that, what's that old, uh, parable that, uh, you know, it's, it's not the single ax that fells the oak. It's many, many little strokes. So a little bit here, a little bit here, you know, that's ultimately what's going to be undoing it. It's just, you can't really be complacent in the whole Correct. situation. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, 
I mean, even if it's against spiders or different types of arachnids, which I can't stand bugs, you know, you know, and, and I don't condone anybody for, you know, not having them or I, I don't sit there and just, you know, I look at them and I go, you know what, you're into something that you're into, you enjoy it. As long as it ain't biting me, I don't care. You know, just don't put it on me, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I respect that, you know, people that want to keep like, you know, even if they're venomous, like severely venomous arachnoids, um, those people are usually the most responsible people in the hobby, you know, because they know what that animal can do. You know, I know a friend that has a spider collection and he says there's one type of spider that he has. If he ever got out, I just burn the house down because I wouldn't want it to get out. Yeah. As, and, as an arachnid enthusiast, I, uh. I got to tell you, and it's, it's funny because the tarantula keeping world is, I mean, I have, I have a lot of listeners who are also into tarantulas as well. And I, I keep about seven of them myself, but the, the attention to like legislation and whatnot, I mean, you think about species bans and, and bans in certain gene, uh, genera and locations, it equally affects the arachnid world as, as well. Oh yeah. So the, uh, it the, will eventually at least. Oh yeah. No, it, it already has. There's been certain species like, um, the uh, Sri, Sri, uh, Sri Lankan species in the uh, Pistolotheria genus are... I'm not familiar with that. Is that uh, the, uh, what do they call those? Uh, what's the common name? The common name, um, oh goodness, it could be anything. Uh, I think they call them like ornamental tree spiders. Or, there, there it is. Yeah. That's the one, okay. But mm -hmm. um, there's a few species that were in Sri Lanka that are now protected and they can't be transported from state to state. And it's a whole, it's it, what we deal with in the frog hobby is paralleled, if not even more so with the arachnid hobby. And those people are just as, as probably more, vi uh, more vigilant than we are about dealing with stuff like this, because it affects them just as much as they did us too, because it, it's look, what's that expression? We're, we're all, we're all part of the same hypocrisy. It, it, Pretty much. It, it's it, everything that affects us, them, everyone else, it's, we're all kind of in it together. And, um, you know, it'd be a shame if we all lose because we don't all agree on the same things. No, that's what I keep on telling people is that I don't care if you're an arachnid person, you're a snake person, you're a frog person, turtle person, tortoise, whatever. We're all the same. We're all in the same kingdom. You know, I mean, basically, if you want to boil it down and break it down, we're all in the same boat. We have to fight this together. And even the fish people have come forward for us. This last time around, the fish people actually spoke up. Well, of course, it did affect fish as well. But when they heard what they were doing with uh, certain legislation before, even if it didn't affect fish, they were actually stepping forward and saying something. You know, I mean, I think if everybody in this hobby would stop being so relaxed about the laws that they're trying to pass and say, oh, they won't do that. Well, look what happened in New York with boas. You know, I mean, you, you can't have a bow in the, in the city of New York now. You can't have anything in the city of New York. <laughs> yeah, that's what I keep hearing, yeah. Well, see, that's the thing. It's like if you if you don't think it's going to pass and you do nothing, well, guess what happens? It passes. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. You know, I mean, you know, there was people – here's an example. I mean, I smoke. So, I mean, you know, when we heard that they were going to try and pass a ban, you know, against smoking in public places – actually was kind of for it because I was like, you figure there's kids in there, there's elderly people. Yeah, you probably shouldn't be smoking in the same room with them. You know, probably shouldn't be smoking with in the same room with non-smokers either. But 
point is, is you couldn't smoke in a, a bar anymore of all places. You know, you figured that's what people do. They go to a bar and smoke and drink. But now you have to stand outside 30 feet away from the door. But everybody's like, oh, that'll never pass. Well, guess what? It did. They didn't vote against it, you know. So, I mean, it's just simple things like that. I mean, it's like, you know, we have a system. Use it. You know, don't think it's not going to pass. Just, you know what? I'm going to take five minutes of my time. I'm going to call my senator. Don't email him because it goes straight to a spam fil- uh, filter. Just call him up, ring the phone off the hook, say, look, I'm, I'm against this ban because, you know, I think it's going to affect not only just, you know, my life, but, you know, it's going to affect the actual, you know, industry, which in, in turn gives, you know, uh, plenty of options for unemployment. I mean, I think the whole goal is to stop unemployment, right? You know, I mean, how many people were actually in the industry? Hundreds of thousands of people, believe it or not. So... Yeah. Okay, I went on a tangent. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, it could actually go further, but I, I realized know, what I, I was doing. Well, just to yeah, just just to kind of get back on track. So I, I want to talk to you about red eye tree frogs. I've never been much of a red eye tree frog person, and I have a lot of questions. So wh- why don't we start off with how you got into working with red eye tree frog? Because you've you've been dealing with them for a while, right? How, how did you get started with them in the first place? Here's a good laugh. My ex-wife. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, see, here, here's, here's the funny part is I was getting into poison arrow frogs, and she couldn't stand the fact that I had to make fruit play cultures and all that stuff. And I, at one time, I had over 30-plus species of dart frogs. That's how I started into frogs originally. And then she was like, you know, at a, at a reptile show with me, and she's seen red eyes. And she's, oh, my God, they're so adorable. I said, they are. Um, you know, I'd like to actually get those soon, you know, someday and start working with tree frogs. And she's like, well, how about we start now? I said, are you going to feed them and clean them? Cause I, I really, I'm kind of buried with all the ret- with all the dart frog stuff I'm doing right now. Sure. Well, yeah, that that's kind of like a little kid. Oh yeah, mom, I'm going to take care of it. And the mom takes care of it from that point on. So I said, well, if I'm going to take care of it, I'm learning a little bit more about them and, uh, you know, get involved as far as like, you know, not only just their husbandry, but let's work on their breeding too and see how it goes. And so 15, 16, maybe 17 years ago, I started breeding red-eye tree frogs. <clears throat> and then morphs started popping up. And uh, believe it or not, the people that were producing the morphs wouldn't actually sell to me because they knew I was actually breeding tree frogs. Um, because they were like weights, you know, I mean, they were cool about it. They weren't like, you're a dick, you know, you breed frogs, we don't, we don't want to sell to you. Uh, they weren't like that or anything. They were just like, let me make my money from the Japan market first. Cause they were selling the albinos for like 12 to $1,500, the purples for like, I think close to two grand. And I'm like, well, all right, whatever. So, and it wasn't like I had to do it immediately. So back in 2008, I think I got my first albinos, started working with them, and then I got the purples the following year and have been kind of popping out weird stuff ever since, you know, by taking certain frogs that look like they had certain characteristics that were different than the original, you know, and um, I kind of was glad I held on to those animals. You know, now we got bubble gums. Now we got, you know, 
T-positive albinos, leucistic, you know, um, which are the bubble gums, technically leucistic. And, uh, you know, I was just trying to, you know, get different variants from, you know, the Latinos and, and, uh, uh, normal albino red eyes. And all of a sudden now we we've got highlighter albinos. So it's just been an interesting thing. You know I mean? I'm, I'm curious about the distinction between like why someone would breed a species that's imported very, very often and wild caught. Cause I remember seeing these things at expos and I remember seeing adults that were much cheaper than froglets or juveniles and i i kind of realized it off the bat i was like all right one's wild caught the other's captive bred did you have a hard time with that whereas it would people could get an adult red-eyed tree frog that was relatively cheap but it was wild caught as opposed to a more expensive captive bred individual i still do actually really how do you how do you work around that well you know the the, the great thing about a great thing about time is people actually learn a lot of people learn is when they buy captive bread, they're less likely to have issues such as possible chytrid, possible ranavirus, you know, parasite issues, bacterial issues. You're, you're less likely to have those, you know, those battles to, to face. But, the, you know, what I'm kind of happy about is a lot of people over the years, they've gone, gone, you know what? I've dealt with wild caught before. I don't even want to deal with it anymore. And they'll pay the extra dollar for, you know, the captive bread now, which is nice. You know, people are getting more and more on buying just captive bread instead of, um, I don't want to name off different distributors that sell wild caught, but, uh, instead of getting it from them, you know, even though they've got a like this huge name and all this other stuff, um, you know, them in the California area or even down in the Florida area where they import them in. And um, sometimes you get lucky enough to get a healthy wild caught. And I do want to say sometimes kind of sparingly, like I, I would I don't want to actually just throw that in the equation and say, you know, you still have a good chance of getting a healthy one. Most of the time they come in like crap. So I, but I still do have people, you know, they'll see like a wild caught across from me and they'll be like, why here's $25 and you're 60. Well, you get what you pay for. I, I try to put it in a nice way. Yeah. I mean, you get what you pay for, but I said, frankly, it's, it's pretty easy to just email an exporter from a different country and buy it off them for two, three dollars, and turn around and sell it for seventeen fifty to a wholesaler. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, actually they jumped up to twenty two fifty on a wholesale now. And then you know the wholesaler or the person who's buying it wholesale just drops it up a couple bucks because he's already starting to lose and he doesn't want to lose out on his money. He figures he'll just recoup it and break even. Big difference, you know. Um, now, in a sense, it's kind of cruel, you know. You would think, you know, bring in these wild caught animals. And, you know, they just die. And the problem is, is like when they come in, you know, they should be treated, you know, but an exporter is not going to treat an animal for a customer. Whereas if you're breeding them, you know what water you're using, you know what fish food you're feeding the actual tadpoles it has to be a high quality, you know, high protein, you know, have low ash. Um, 
you know, that's the other thing too, is like those things are important is water quality and fish food. Now that costs money. So when you're raising it up, we all know that crickets have jumped up ridiculous. I mean, you, you don't get a thousand in a box anymore and it's like $3 a thousand, uh, extra a thousand in some cases compared to last year. Are you using banded crickets or domestic crickets? Banded, banded. Domestics are very few to be found anymore in any places that I have found that had the bandits left over. Their bandits are in such bad shape. They have like, uh, I mean, I'm not going to try and talk bad about certain cricket companies, but some banded cricket companies actually, not banded, but uh, the Browns rather, don't clean their crickets enough, if that makes sense. So you get bacterial issues that can be passed on to the animals. So in sense, you could be possibly medicating your animal after you feed it. That's interesting. I, I'd heard people mention that anecdotally. I was always curious about that because, I mean, they the domestic crickets, and just for anyone who's listening outside of the U.S., I know you guys have different types of crickets that are available in the U.K. and in, in Europe and whatnot, and I have no idea what you guys have in 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 uh, Australia, but here we had the domestic cricket, which generally is like, it's horrible. They were the hobby staple for decades, but you buy a bag of like 50 of them, you bring them home, you put them in a bin, and then they're dead in like, like 24, 36 hours. Whereas the banded crickets just seem to live on forever. But yeah, I'd heard about people who have voiced concerns about quality of, of, domestic crickets being potential vectors for infection in animals. Have, have you ever had that happen? Or I actually have. Uh, there's a company that's out by you guys. And again, I'm not going to really mention companies, but uh, it's out in the eastern part of the U.S. And they showed up to a show the one time and I was kind of, you know, tight on crickets at the time. Um, when I got the box, I could smell it. You know, something off about them. They just, they just stunk. You know, not like dead crickets, but just like something wasn't right about them. So I took them home, threw them on top of my, because I make my own cricket food. Um, you know, I basically formulated it for, you know, amphibians in general, because it doesn't have a toxic vitamin A and it has a really high protein in it. But um, they still were just, they still stunk. Even if I took them out of the box, I figured maybe it's the box. Maybe it's because they've been in the box so long because crickets do urinate. They do, you know, uh, defecate in there and it does, you know, does stink after a while. But even in the bin, they stunk. And I knew something was off from there, but I didn't do anything about it in time. And I wound up getting a whole rack of animals that ate just the large crickets. It's what I got. It's just the large crickets. Uh, there were three quarters, to be honest. Um, and I had to medicate every single one of them a week later because they just all started kind of going down. They just didn't weren't active. They were um, displaying like off color. And uh, I just uh, I knew something was up right then and there. And I, I did it another time like an idiot. I did it another time and the same thing happened. So I'm convinced that it's the same cricket company that has that problem. but. You know, again, I just go with the bandits because they just seem to be cleaner. Uh, they live a little longer and they're a lot more prolific, by the way. Yeah, I, I can't imagine going back to, I mean, they're not as big. I mean, they get big, but they don't quite get as big as the domestics. But 
the longevity that's, is that's like the other downfall yeah yeah but the shelf life is like i mean anything i have that gets bigger than that i can always give doobie roaches but yeah the shelf life is is incredible they just go on and on now as far as like um I mean, well, I'll tell you what, while we're talking about diet and whatnot, if you wanted to, I guess, provide a good diet for the, the whole life cycle of a red-eyed tree frog, meaning uh, you want to make sure that an adult gets the right quality food and that a tadpole is getting the right quality food, like, can you kind of walk us through that whole circle of the life cycle and how you'd, uh, how you'd provide uh, proper feeding for them through tadpole through adult? Sure. Sure. I mean, uh, my, my experience in my experience over the years, the best regiment that I ever went by was, uh, I've always dusted with RepCal products. Okay. Um, for, for the tree frogs in general, uh, I switched it over to Rapashi to one time. Um, didn't really mean to say any company's name out there, but I'm just giving an example, um, that it's, it's not a bad vitamin for other amphibians just it doesn't seem to work well with you know tree frogs so i switched it back to the actual repcal products now the way i mix it is i actually use the herptivite and the calcium with vitamin d3 and i mix three parts of the vitamin to three parts or three parts vitamin to one part calcium i'm sorry and this way um since you know amphibians in general have a tendency of getting intestinal blockage if they have too much calcium that's the way i regimen it so um, but there are exceptions to that rule. So say if you have the crown tree frogs or like the, they call them the ducks or the triprions, um, you would want a three part calcium to one part vitamin because they have such a bony uh, structure that they can actually get crooked backs if they don't get enough of that vitamin or that they don't get enough of that calcium. So it's really strange how that works, but. There are some exceptions to the rule, but for most amphibians, I use three parts herptivite to one part calcium. So I start them off with that, and I basically throw them through a cycle. You know, you got to dry them out, not like bone dry, but, you know, just lower the humidity to like no higher than 75%, no lower than 50% on some of these tree frogs. And I guess I I could kind of go into, that's what I'm explaining for red eyes, by the way. Um, that doesn't always work with other tree frogs, so don't try that with clowns because they will. If you drop, if you dry them out to five, 50 percent, they're just going to be a little prune. Um, so <laughs> I just want to point that out before I go any further. <clears throat> so, anyways, you know, feeding the crickets is you know a good diet. That's another thing. You know, I mean, a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to buy Fluker's. Um, you know, they're they're cricket food, which does in fact have a lot of toxic vitamin A towards amphibians I've found. And there was actually a paper on that as well. Um, I wish I had that in front of me. I'd give you a reference, but um, you know, the thing is, is you had to give them carotenoids. You can't give them just vitamin A on most part because um, with vitamin A, their livers can't really process it is what I've heard and found and read. So I've given just carotenoids and it seems to work out pretty good where they could turn it into vitamin A naturally so it's proper uh, proper enough to work and actually, you know, for embryo development in the egg. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I remember a while back I had read a paper that was, um, I mean, the issue was with amphibian, well, reptile supplements that were being repurposed for amphibians, but the, the, the just to sum it up quickly, in this, the study, 
basically showed that amphibians can't synthesize the beta carotene that was in a lot of these supplements and just amphibians in general, from what I understand, just they can't synthesize that into vitamin A. So then they're, and then preformed or I, I don't really know too much how to really get into this, but um, preformed vitamin A or forms of vitamin A that could be metabolized made their way in and they became really popular with, with, with dart frogs and what I know a lot of people kind of incorporate that into, I guess, if they want to increase tadpole health or whatnot. But there was another paper about carotenoids in um, Familio that came out as well. It talked about the value of that and then that increasing egg production and whatnot as well. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there on, um, on the, on different nutrients and whatnot. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, right. I didn't mean to go off into no, a different no, no, direction. No, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a uh, beta carotene, which is in Repcal's herp device, by the way. Um, but you can actually ask uh, a couple of, I guess like zoologists that are into that uh, and which I have, and I've asked them, I said, you know, a lot of people have been switching over to astroxanthin. How do you feel about that? Astroxanthin, I guess is a better carotenoid to begin with. Um, the next thing to use after that would be canthanacin, or I believe that's how you pronounce it. Canthanacin. Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. It's the same thing they use for like flamingos and, and uh, red macaws to keep that red pigment in the actual feathers. So we've been using that like for, you know, when we actually make the crystals, the water crystals, um, we actually put a, a couple of grains because that's all it takes. It's just a couple of grains. You can mix it with the water and then put the water crystals in there and let it expand and absorb all that nutrients and then give it to the, the uh, crickets. Now, the crickets do turn like a reddish orange, too, by the way. So when you feed that to your your frogs, that has a tendency which I probably should have added that into the food items so that you feed prior to breeding. Um, apologies. Uh, so, I mean, that probably would be one of the reasons that I have another good success with the embryo development too. Is that just because of the parental health or? You're correct. Yeah. I mean, if you're adding it to the parent, the parents diet, um, the females pretty much utilize that to put into the eggs that she's producing um instead of just raw right vitamin a they actually can process themselves what about getting females ready or real i guess females and males ready do you, do you change the feeding and supplementation regimen before immediately before you breed i mean yeah that's that's basically what i do is i actually just you know give them i make a cricket gut load for myself for the animals but so they get that nutrients but then when I go to actually breed, before I breed, like two weeks prior to that, I'll actually give them more of that carotenoid. Whether it be, there's a, a certain one I actually do mix in once in a while, like during breeding, is called Renarium, Carotenoid Plus. Yeah, I've heard of it. And, and I've actually had some pretty su good success with that. Um, so I mix that, a little bit of that in with the actual vitamin dust. Um, and lately, like I said, I've been using the, the campanacin in the actual water crystals, and that seems to be working. So, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about that. And plus, the, the animal's color really brightens up as well. Um, now, would I feed it to them like that all the time? No. No, I wouldn't do that. I think there is a certain point where some animals could get too much. And how often... Do you, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I'm more familiar with dart frogs, which kind of just breed all year regardless, but 
how do you yeah, sneeze in a room they breed yeah <laughs> how do you how do you cycle red-eyed tree frogs to breed is it something you do once a year twice a year how do you like what's the whole process of cycling them and then going through breeding uh the most that i do it is three times a year because i don't think females can handle it in captivity for much more than that um you could really burn your females out and I've had a lot of people say, well, I've thrown mine in there four times. And I said, well, how long did it take to recruit? And I said, oh, damn near six months. He said, that's why. You know, I mean, so if you're breeding like two or three times a year, it's probably the, the healthier part of the animal. Now, if the, now, if your red eyes do get gravid, um, I do suggest throwing them in the rain chamber, even if they just dump the eggs, because captive bred red eyes can actually produce more eggs than wild caught. and I do realize that in the wild, if they don't breed, they can reabsorb their eggs fine. But when you have a female that's actually producing over what they're normally supposed to, they can't always absorb it. And they'll actually get, uh, you know, it'll start to king and weigh it in them. They'll actually wind up getting septic. Um, so that's that's kind of important, too. And I know there's a lot of breeders that we've we've went back and forth and talked about it. And they all agree that, you know, yeah, it, it seems like when I don't do that, I will, I lose the female. And, you know, everybody's like, well, what do you do if you're not trying to breed them? Well, just let them dump their eggs. You know, if you're not trying to breed them, just let them at least dump their eggs, scrape them off the glass or cut the leaf off and throw it away. You know, a lot of people don't want to go through that. You know, they got to take care of the tadpoles and all that, which we'll get to shortly. As far as the tadpoles, I think that there's a lot of things that need to be addressed about the tadpoles as well. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is kind of important as far as the diet, you know, beforehand and, you know, whenever you do breed them. Uh, but I wouldn't push it. I wouldn't push the amount of times they truly can breed a year. And they're sort of like opt, um, opportunistic breeders, right? I mean, whenever it, it rains, that kind of would stimulate them to breed, right, in the wild? Oh, they're, they're like little barometers in this house. So I trust them over the weatherman any day. Um, yeah, whenever we get a good front, like this time of year, we're getting a bunch of rain coming through cold rain. It's like Seattle here for crying out loud. Uh, but they still feel it. And even during the winter time, some, some, sometimes they'll fire up when there's a good snowstorm coming through. Um, I mean, they, they, once they, if they want to, they're going to. <laughs> what do you keep them in groups to breed or how does like, what's the social dynamic when they breed? Well, yes, I, I have to. Uh, usually keep like at least two males to each female. Um, with red eyes, that's probably the best way to have success with them because the multiple calls and, uh, you know, of course, all that stuff, which uh, a few people have actually put on YouTube, which is really funny to watch if you ever get a chance to see it. Uh, the males will actually sit there and try and vibrate the leaves so the other one falls off. That's great. That's like the glass frog swatting away wasps. <laughs> yeah. For anybody who hasn't seen it, there's footage out there of a glass frog, a male, I think it's a male guarding an egg mass on a leaf, and these wasps come over and try to eat the eggs, so it just sort of, like, just swats at them with it. It's really good at it. It just kind of kicks them off, but, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting about the males on the leaves. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting that a lot of amphibians have different behaviors towards that. Where the guard, you know, they glass the glass frogs will actually guard their nests. Where red eyes, they'll just leave them. 
you know, they just they just walk away. And of course, in the wild, they're subject to being eaten by cat-eyed snakes or uh, there's certain insects that eat the eggs as well. Um, so yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, that's probably why they lay so many eggs is because I think it's nature's food source for a lot of different animals. Yeah, it's like just I guess the law of averages is people don't really appreciate the extent to which frogs are just explosive breeders in certain situations. And mm-hmm. it's like they're they're producing so many offspring during the course of the year, obviously because very few are gonna make it. And I obviously that that's I guess in, in, in your favor when you want to breed them because they're just so productive at certain points. So where do they typically deposit eggs? I mean, on the side of the glass, on a leaf, or I mean, they don't have any kind of preferred, just any flat surface will do? Yeah, in, in the rain chamber, they'll lay them on the leaves and the glass. Um, when they're in a 10-gallon with a paper towel and a water dish, and like I said, if they want to, they're going to, they'll lay them right above the paper towel, like about uh, five inches above it. it it's, it's really strange because uh, you figured, you know, an animal would not, really feel comfortable in just a 10 gallon tank with a with a paper towel and a water dish but if they weren't comfortable enough to breed then they wouldn't obviously right well apparently that isn't the case with them you know they're like one of the easier species to breed and i always recommend you know with people who want to breed tree frogs for their first tree frog breed red eyes get a taste of it you know and how to actually care for it, because it's very similar to other tadpoles as well. So what happens once, do you leave the eggs where they are and they just kind of drop into the water, or like what what happens between egg and tadpole? Well, there's a there's a, a couple of methods you could do with this. Um, I found that leaving them in this, inside the tank and opening it up and misting around the eggs instead of misting the eggs directly, which we'll get into why not in a few, but uh, I figured that you know, it's going to be the same temperature. It was the temperature that they actually felt comfortable with laying the eggs. <clears throat> and it's usually around like 80 during the day and it's like 77 at night. The humidity in there is always at like, you know, like damn near 85, 90%. So with that being said, um, you want to keep them like that and let them hatch out in the water below and then just fish them out after you fed, you know, given them a good couple of feedings. So when it's really, when they're super small, you really don't want to move them because you can actually screw up their gills really, really fast. Um, and I just found that if you grow them up for a couple of days to where they get some size on them, then you can actually kind of net them out gently with one of those blue nets, those real fine ones that's got a soft feeling to it, and put them into an actual like tank or tub, you know, with a filtration system on it. Over the intake, if you are using a cancer filter, I do want to recommend that whoever does this, that they put a sponge over the intake because if you put just the netted part, they will it will still suck the tadpoles in. It won't go well. So just put a sponge over it, and this way it'll still suck the water through it, but the tadpoles won't get caught in it. What about flow and, and water temperature? Because I, I keep my, I've been raising my dart frogs, my tadpoles out communally in a, like a Rubbermaid tub with a sponge filter and I just kind of let it, it it kind of just cycled on its own. I just kind of let it run indefinitely. And if I have tadpoles, I put them in and grow them out. How would you raise your, your red eye tadpoles? Do you have a preference for the size of the tank and how many tadpoles go in or 
What's what's that whole process involved? Sure. I mean, uh, we have 65-gallon tanks that we do anywhere from 300 tadpoles to 400 tadpoles, and we do do water changes every day. Um, and I think that's important, not just because of the ammonia, but because of the hormone that they release at each other. So the less hormones in there, the less you're going to have stunted frogs. Now, if you're just beginning this and you, you know, this is your first time, I probably would recommend no more than 200 to a 65 gallon, just in case you're not acclimated to doing water changes every day. If you want to do them every other day, that's fine, but you still have to do a quarter percent, like a 25% water change. And if you have good water and the pH is somewhere around 7.6, 7.8, you shouldn't have any problems as long as you dechlorinate it. Uh, then again, I don't know how much metals are in your water. So what we have to do is we have to use three parts RO water to one part dechlorinated tap water because our water is so horrible here. We've got a lot of magnesium and, and iron in our water, so um, which is actually toxic to tadpoles. So that's what I'm recommending to anybody who's listening is make sure your water is a good quality water and, you know, just stay on top of it. That's all. Uh, you can use sponge filters uh, when they're small. And then you can use a canister filter with a sponge over the intake when they're a little bit bigger. And uh, current isn't really a problem with them if you have a decent sized amount of water. And of course, most of those canister filters, you can control the valve on it as well. So I guess I'd like to point that out as well. What about feeding them? Now, when they're small, obviously they're not going to eat a big flake. So my suggestion would be get a coffee grinder one of those cheap coffee grinders that you get from like walgreens or not walgreens but walmart and just use it to grind up fish food for tiny tadpoles and my recommendation is using a high protein fish food that does has low ash in it because the ash is usually what causes the most problems with like the ph change and actually can kill the tadpoles. That's interesting. I never would have... It's funny because I, I look at the nutritional content of different things and whatnot, just out of curiosity. I mean, like on cat food and dog food, let's say it. And I mean, just for everybody who doesn't quite know what that means, on a list of ingredients and nutrients or whatever on any kind of food product, there'll be a list of, of what is in it. And I believe how it's done is it's done... I think like like it's like a like chromatography or something like that where they basically they incinerate the material and each different component gives off a different color and ash is basically all the I guess all the junk that's left over that can't be identified. I always figured it was just you know just extra nothing that didn't serve any value. I didn't realize that it actually affected uh, the quality of the food. Yeah, some of the fish food that they have out there actually has a high amount of yeast in it as well which can cause bloat for tadpoles. So that's another thing you got to kind of look for is make sure it doesn't have a lot of yeast in it or a very low percentage. Um, yeah, it's really tough to find a good fish food. I mean, I literally have to buy raw spirulina that's been cool dried and they call it crisp spirulina flake. I actually sell it and people use it for their isopods too, which we can get to down the road as well if you want to. But, um, for the most part, I'll actually take that and grind that up into a, a coffee grinder real quick. It, just, it takes like literally five seconds to grind it up to, to a powder. 
And uh, that's what I'll start them off is feed them a little bit at a time because you don't want to pollute the water. And plus that spirulina goes a long way. It's not like your typical spirulina flake that you get from Wardley's or something like that, where you could throw like, you know, a handful in, you know, a big tank, which I actually probably wouldn't go that far, not a handful, but like a teaspoon. And, uh, you know, it, it won't turn the water flaming green, you know what I mean? Yeah, that stuff's powerful. I, um, I have my own media recipe for my fruit flies and I also have a, like a gut load regimen for my dubia colony. And I incorporate spirulina a lot into that, but yeah, if you add too much spirulina to that water, it just turns, it looks like, like green watercolor. That's how, that's how crazy this color it gets. Yeah. I mean, I actually, um, like people ask me, do you put a dye in your, your fruit fly media? Cause we make our own wells we sell it as well and all that. But when they make them, they're like, does this have a dye in it? I'm like, no, that's actually algae. It's two different types of algae. One of them is actually spirulina. But I use the organic raw spirulina. And um, this way it gives the, the, you know, the actual media a little bit more protein content for the, for the actual larvae. Because the flies don't eat it, the larvae do. Yeah, that's right. The flies just eat, I think, the, um, the yeast. Yeah, the, the yeast that grows on top of it. So I'm assuming the tadpoles don't, I mean, since you're doing water changes and whatnot, they're not grazing on any kind of like biofilm or anything in the tank, right? I mean, you're keeping the tank kind of super clean. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not wiping the sides down, but I do notice they will actually start to eat some of the biofilm that goes on the sides of the tanks or on the filter, you know, intakes and all that. And uh, which is fine. You know, I mean, it's. From what I've understood from fish people that have told me, they're like, yeah, we when we're raising up, you know, certain fry, um, they actually eat that as well. And there's a very high protein con in that. It's just that the protein's from the water. That's all that is. And that's how it was explained to me. Now, whether that's true or not, it doesn't seem to harm the tadpoles. Um, but again, I don't, I don't have like scum growing in there. I try to keep it a little bit cleaner than that. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is I use water plants as well. But here's my trick. So I don't buy the ones that are in the actual fish tanks. I buy the ones that are in the plastic tubes that have never seen or been near any kind of pathogen. Yeah, I know which ones you're talking about. They, I usually steal those at, like, big box pet stores and whatnot. They're like emergence, yeah. like, um, uh, like uh, what's, what's that? Anubia, I think, is one. Java fern is the one I yeah, use. Yeah, Java fern, yeah. And I'll tell you, the Java fern that I buy in those tubes grows faster by like, uh, I'm going to say tenfold. I'm not kidding either or exaggerating. It grows ten times faster than what I would pull out of one of those fish tanks. I don't know why, but I'm not caring. Yeah, I take the pups off, but I actually sell them or give them away to people, you know. I mean, if if they need them, you know, it's just it reproduces so fast, but at the same token, it's cleaning your tank along with that filter, along with you doing water changes. I mean, the less hormone and the less pollutants you have in that water, the better your tadpoles are going to do. They're going to come out bigger, better developed. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're pulling them out where we're feeding them eighth inch to almost quarter inch crickets. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said about that. Now there's a lot of people out there that, that swear I don't only change the water once a week or once every two weeks. And then they're like, well, I have to feed these things practically fruit flies. Well, here's the problem with feeding tree frogs, fruit flies, like dart, like red tree frogs rather is that they're not going to grow fast. There's not really much calcium. 
There's, I mean, basically all fruit fly is fiber. That's all it is. So when you're actually feeding them crickets, like eighth inch crickets, you know, and you're giving the crickets a proper gut load, you're going to have that animal grow a lot faster and a lot better developed. And it's going to, you know, within six months, it'll be an adult sized animal. Now, can you breed them at six months? Males? Yes. Females? No. I will warn you of that. But, um, you know, I mean, uh, it's just a lot of little tricks like that that you can kind of like avoid having problems in the future. You know what I'm saying? So. And how long would it would it take from when the tadpole hatches out? Well, not only hatch, but when the tadpole goes from egg to egg to tadpole, and then actually walks out of the water as a as a neonate. How long does that whole process take? Well, anywhere from eight to to eleven days is when a tadpole hatches out of the egg. Um, from the time it hatches out of the egg to the time it is actually a froglet is somewhere around five to six weeks, depending on what temperature you keep them at. If you keep them any lower than 76, which I don't recommend because you could actually wind up with kinked backed frogs from the temperature being too cold. But if it's around 76 to 78 degrees, you can actually get them out of the water really well developed within five to six weeks. That's fast. Yeah, it is. It's it, sometimes I have some that'll straggle on for like you know twelve to thirteen weeks, and you know sometimes they'll come out gigantic. I mean, just like mutants, you know, like one inch. I, we had one that came out one inch, and which is extremely large for a baby red-eyed tree frog. Usually, they're more found anywhere from like five eighths to three quarters of an inch, and you know that's that's a fairly good-sized froglet that comes out of the water. And right off the bat, it's eating eighth-inch crickets, and within two weeks, it's eating quarter-inch. Fine, but when it comes out of the water eating quarter-inch crickets to almost three-eighth-inch crickets, that's impressive. So, what do you do with an individual like that? Do you keep it as a holdback, or I have in the past, yeah. It, it figuring it was going to be bigger than normal, eh, it's the same. It's the same size as you know the other, you know, the same sex that it was. You know, if it was a male, it'd be like two, two and a quarter inches. Um, you know, females would be topping out three and three quarter or three and a quarter inch, you know, sometimes three and a half, but it, it's never any bigger than like what I would normally get. How do you get the juvenile started and how long do you keep them before they're of a size that you feel comfortable putting them up for sale? I raise them up for the first week in a 190 ounce container, say about four to five and we'll switch switch them into a different 190 ounce container. We've had as many as 10 in there, but I wouldn't really do that much more than eight um, unless you really know what you're doing. Um, but we switch into a clean container every day. And then once they're about a week old and we see a lot of fecal matter, you know, like starting to up here, you know, like they're definitely eating. Then we put them into a 10 gallon. It's half glass, half screen. Now, of course, now me saying this, I'm going to say this very delicately. The room itself is at 80% humidity. So in a typical house, you probably would want to go three quarters to maybe 80% glass and then the rest screen so they wouldn't dry out. But we take all those froglets every day and put them into a new tank every day. And then, of course, this is a lot of work, but it's the only way to do it properly, uh, in my opinion, because it, the faster they see the food in a, on a paper towel rather than a bioactive tank, the faster they eat the food, 
that's got the dust, the faster they're going to grow, the better they're going to develop. You know, I mean, you know, take a kid, throw them in the middle of the woods after you've uh, cooked a steak and tell them to go find it. These days, it just starve and die but you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> these young you young people today <laughs> i i want to get Sorry, into kids. that yeah i i want to get into that the the dynamic of how you keep things as well because there was um i mean we'll, we'll, we'll you know you know what i'm talking about we'll get into it in a little bit but um right. that was that infamous youtube video but so you you raise them up and you're cleaning are you breaking down each tank and cleaning it and then like we yeah, we just put them in. A okay. new, yeah, we put them in a new towel, <clears throat> or with a new towel and a new water dish every day. You know, I mean, basically a new tank every day with that that all done up, and then spritz the sides so they get a little bit of moisture as they're crawling up, and they'll get the water through their their glands. And at nighttime, I do spritz the youngsters a little bit just to kind of help aid with shedding. Because if they don't shed, if they actually dry out a little bit and don't shed, it becomes like a wetsuit and they can't breathe. So I think that's important as well. Um, the other thing I wanted to kind of mention too, though, is we do raise them up until they're at least eating like three-eighth inch crickets because it's easier to get three-eighth inch or half-inch crickets from a pet shop than it is, you know, eighth inch. That's, that's, a good that's point. another reason yeah. we kind of raise them up and, and you have less die. I mean, if you're going to do this, what's the purpose of just selling an animal that's going to die on somebody in five days or less? You want this animal to flourish. I mean, this is the whole purpose of it. I mean, yeah, there's a business aspect that, yeah, you got to eat at the end of the day, but you know what? At the end of the day, you got to have some morals hands down. So I, I think a lot of people, you know, have been a lot happier with what we're selling them as a bigger animal, a better developed animal than, you know, some of these wholesalers that just sell like two week old animals. And I think that's, that's uh, the point of it though. You know, I mean, less animals die. Yeah. There's always a balance between, I mean, as I mentioned before earlier, a lot of times you see inexpensive adults for sale, you, you know, that they got their wild caught or they were what, however they got here, they, they're not, they weren't captive bred. And right. then you have these really tiny little, like, sit-on-a-dime-size juveniles. And then you have that kind of, like, mid-size. And that's always, like, when I go for, sh like, shopping for frogs, and I, I, I love to put eyes on them because I want to see what I'm getting, there's, like, that sweet spot between, like, really, really tiny and, and adult where it just feels like it's it's comfortable. You can tell that the frog is, is well-started. Right, yeah. you got to put a little love into it, I guess. Um, the other thing I was going to mention, too, is... You know, whenever you're you're going to get your animals and you, you're going to get, you know, purchase your animals, always look at the size of the space between the eyes. You know, as far as your tree frogs are concerned, you know, as far as red eyes are concerned, rather. The space between the eyes, that's the size meal you should be feeding your animal, whether it be, you know, uh, roach nymphs or, you know, that size cricket. Those are the, that's the size you want to go, because if it's any bigger than that, Generally, they can't digest it fast enough, and they can actually prolapse. Um, if that makes any sense to you, yeah, absolutely. Well, how how do you? That's another question for you. How do you? What makes a healthy looking red eye tree frog? Like, let's just say that I'm a new person. I don't have any experience with red eye tree frogs, which is actually true because I don't. I I kept one once years ago. What what am I looking for in a healthy individual, and what should I look out for in a unhealthy individual? 
Oh, the, the stomach is the first sign that I would be looking for in a lot of them. Um, you know, when they, they're stuck to the sides, you can actually see the stomach. You know, if it's not, you know, if it's sunken in where you can actually see bones in the back, you know. Um, but when you're looking at the belly, if it's like deep red, chances are it's more than stressed. It's actually got a bacterial infection. Um, when you look at the feet, you know, if the feet, you know, aren't a crisp, like yellowish orange and they're like red, like they got like a hint of red to them sometimes or like red veins. That right there is a, is a sign that they've been kept way too dirty too long. Um, the other sign is when you look at the actual animal and it opens its eyes, you know, if the eyes aren't clear, you know, they're cloudy. Um, there's any kind of abrasions on their legs or anything like that. That's a bad sign. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, a, it's, you're just basically seeing like a picture perfect frog is what you always want to go with because it's usually the less likely to have a problem. Um, you know, if you settle for, you know, something that's doesn't look all there, you're like, ah, I could probably bring it back, but you're fairly new to it. Chances are you're going to lose it because if you're fairly new, you're not used to amphibian medicine, which can be a pain in the ass. I mean, I've been doing this for close to 30 years and I, I absolutely hate it um, because, you know, if you catch it too late, it's done. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of the conditions, once they become symptomatic, it's a little bit you know, it's, 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 yeah, too it's hard late. to bring them back. Yeah. Um, I have had problems, you know, over the years where if somebody got an animal and a month and a half later, say something went wrong, you know, the temperature changed too drastically or they weren't quite cleaning it as much as, you know, usually it's kind of an easy fix if they get a hold of me right away, which you can use fish medications. Uh, you know, I just give them, you know, the best ability that I can. I, my my go-to one is Canaplex because um, it's not only a antibacterial, it's an antifungal. And it's not nearly as harmful as like Batro or anything like that on their kidneys. But uh, which is, they call that anrofloxin, which there is a fish medication of anrofloxin, but that's still kind of a little, little hard on them. Um, but Canamycin mixed with this antifungal seems to be like the least likely to have problems um, if it's mixed, you know, which just my suggestion. I'm not a vet by any means, but I've used 200 milligrams to a liter of water, soak the animals, you know, uh, it seems to help kind of bounce them back. Sometimes amphibian ringers bounce them back. You know, it's really strange on how that works. Maybe it's just dehydration you're, you're really uh, facing. You know, which seems to be the case with some of them out wild caught, but I'm not going to say all of them. So let's just say that I got my first red-eyed tree frog, well-established juvenile, and then for whatever reason, something goes wrong, it gets sick. What are some common or common or, or uncommon mistakes or issues that would lead to health problems with frogs? And how would you identify the, the cause? Because like before you mentioned prolapse due to improper prey size, like situations like that, like what are some situations that would pop up and what would be the cause and the, and the treatment for it? All right. Well, let's, let's cover prolapse real quick um, on different ways that it could actually occur. Um, prey size, number one, um, keeping the animal too cool and not giving a nighttime high or a nighttime drop and a daytime high 
that is actually part of the problem too. If you don't keep the animal like say 78, 80 degrees during the day and then drop it only down to like say 75, that five degrees difference, believe it or not, makes a difference in their digestion where they can actually metabolize it. So with that being said, that's usually the other most common one. The next most common one, and it's unfortunate, is people just simply don't change the water. So with that being said, is if you don't change the water every day, chances are you can wind up with a bacterial infection. Um, and the other one that's most common is probably them just drying out. You know, where they have a full screen exoterra, but even when I hand them the care sheet, they don't read the part where it says, you know, on the lid, it has to be screened, but you want to cover 80% of it. They don't read the 80% covered with saran wrap or glass or plexiglass. That seems to be the other issue that a lot of people run into. And again, you know, these are all new people that, you know, are still kind of trying to figure it out, you know, and, and I get it, you know, I mean, we're never all just born with this knowledge, but it is on the paper. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, it is on the care sheet I hand out. And uh, I really got to actually start putting that back up on the on the website is the care sheets. And, uh, you know, I mean, hopefully, you know, it doesn't help just my sales, you know, but it helps other people with theirs as well. You know, well, you know, I've, I went on the site, I've seen a care sheet and, you know, I mean, yeah, I've been breeding tree for red tree frogs for like, you know, close to, you know, 16, 17 years or something like that. Maybe this guy actually knows what he's doing. You know, okay, I'll take his advice and hopefully it helps, you know, but I mean, you, you can't save everything. I know that. I understand that only 2% of these animals in the wild make it from egg. That was the study that was done, by the way. 2% of these animals make it from egg to adult. Yeah, sounds, and, about, sounds about right, yeah. And we're pulling out 90, 95%. I mean, that's, that's a huge difference. But that doesn't mean that all animals that we pull out of the water are going to be meant to live. I mean, I think everything's got its own expiration date as it is, you know, we do for crying out loud, you know, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, like I said, the problems that, that some people run into are some kind of minor ones that could be fixed, you know, when it's captive bred, when it's wild caught, sometimes you've got to bust out the dewormers. I mean, in some cases you have to treat it for chytrid. Uh, there is no such thing as a treatment for ranavirus. It's always going to have it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's just a, a lot of things that can come to play with any kind of frog. I mean, we, we picked the most delicate hobby to have next to saltwater fish. You know, I mean, I think saltwater fish is probably the most delicate than it's chameleons and, and amphibians, you know. So we, we kind of made our bed, you know. <laughs> Does yeah. that, that sound, sound about right? You it, know? it does, and it, it's funny because it, I feel like the amphibian hobby kind of got lumped in with the, the reptile hobby sort of by default, and I, I originally, when I, was, when I was younger, I didn't really see much of a difference because I was like, all right, they're, they're kind of similar. I mean, they're not mammals. They're not birds, but they're so, they're so different, and I find that a lot of the approaches towards reptile husbandry and reptile medicine and whatnot is applied towards the amphibian mode but it's actually so different it's actually a lot more in common with with fish and, and aquatics like i was talking to some I was talking to a vet about something i said well, what do you do with 
when you have a sick uh, axolotl or something like that. He goes, well, I call the fish vet. I said, all right, that's, that sounds, you know, that, that sounds reasonable, but, um, yeah, just sensitivities to different medications and the way they're absorbed and whatnot. And I just, it, you're right. It is, um, why do we do this? <laughs> it's, it's such a pain. It's like, gluttons I, for punishment. Yeah. I, I, my, my tarantula is I could just, they, they, they sit in a box all day and do nothing. I throw in a doobie or roach every so often and they mold and that's about it. I don't, I keep them at room temperature. Whereas the frogs, it's funny because I got into tarantulas because the frogs were such a, a, a pain and so stressful sometimes that I needed something more relaxing. So I took a hobby to, I got into another hobby to take a break from my main hobby. But, um, isn't that, isn't that weird how it works? Yeah. Yeah. It is it's like me with tortoises, you know, everybody's like, why are you all of a sudden getting into tortoises? After paying popcorn with frogs for 25 plus years. You really appreciate shit that moves slower than you as you get older. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I say it over and over again because it's completely true. But I'll never leave the frogs because it's, uh, it's, that's, that's always going to be my passion. I am thinning down, but I'm only going to be to the point where I'm only working with rare stuff or the red eye morphs. uh, Just because, well, there's plenty of people doing white street frogs. You know, as much as there's a shortage on white street frogs, it's only because of COVID, in my opinion, because everybody was bored and got into a hobby and figured, well, let's get into a frog that is the easiest thing on the planet to take care of. You know, and of course, that's what people thought about red eyes as well. And um, not saying that they're hard, but they're harder than white street frogs. So let's just say that I want to set up something at home. I mean, obviously, your your operation is, is different from what the average person would set up at home, but... Let's just say I want to build an enclosure for a, a single individual or, or a pair or just whatever. What's your advice in terms of how to build an enclosure for just the average person and how to maintain it and set it up, parameters and lighting and whatnot? What, what okay. would you recommend? Well, my recommendation, you know, if you're going to go with an Exeterra, for one single adult, maybe two, as long as it's clean, you know, cleaned on a regular basis, um, you can use a bioactive setup, but again, you know, I mean, I don't want to have people think that bioactives are going to save the world. With tree frogs, they're a little messier than dark frogs. Uh, they're a lot more, they, they, they leave their shed on the glass, so you got to wipe the glass down occasionally. Um, they'll shed on the plants, they'll, they'll uh, defecate and urinate on the plants and the windows and all that stuff, which... You want to wipe that down occasionally, like at least once or twice a week. Um, but for one or two that's well planted with pothos, philodendron, uh, spathophyllum, which is uh, peace lilies, those are the plants I recommend for tree frogs, for red tree frogs, because not only are they simple, uh, they're not super delicate plants. I mean, they're very hardy. I mean, you got to throw gasoline on them to kill them sometimes. Um, I don't recommend that by the way. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is the fact that they are in their natural environment anyways. So you want to kind of go with something that's going to help clean the tank, which pothos, philodendron and, and peace lilies are known for cleaning the, 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 uh, the actual nitrogen in the soil. Um, but again, you know, you have to wipe the sides down, occasionally wipe the plants down. You know, I mean, just good husbandry, you know, it only takes like five minutes. 
what about substrate and um i mean would would you would you mist the enclosure like with a misting system at night would that take care of cleaning the the glass and the plants if you had a very good drainage uh drain plugged in the back of it like if you knew how to drill glass and you actually put a drain on it um i'd say okay and as long as there's at least 20 percent ventilation yes but you can't keep red eyes constantly wet you know um a lot of your tree frogs you can't keep constantly wet or else you're going to run into problems where you, they can't dry out and all of a sudden bacterial form on the legs which is called you know, they call it red leg a lot of people um which it's not an actual disease it's just the name of several different types of diseases that are related does that so, make sense yeah yeah i i remember i remember the old days when i worked at a local shop and we would get tree frog of course everything was wild caught and the only term the only term that we knew was was red leg and i remember you know a couple of years later i looked into it as yeah like you said it's a bunch of different types of bacteria I think there's one there's one particular bacteria that's the most common, but yeah, they all looked, I think that was it. Yeah, I mean they they all looked terrible when they came in, but I uh, I'm, I'm surprised at how clean you actually have to keep it. And I my theory was, and you 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 tell me what you think of this. A lot of tree frogs, well, I should say all tree frogs, like are not going to come into contact with the ground. They're going to be by and large arboreal, so they're not going to be walking across substrate that would have fecal matter and and dirt and dead things and like the same way that dart frogs would be if they're running across leaf litter they're going to come into contact with stuff that's fallen from the trees so my my rationale was that everything that a a tree frog produces in in the canopy or whatever level of the the trees and lives in it's just going to kind of drop off and fall to the ground or the tree frog is just going to like walk away from it and leave it and find a cleaner place i mean am i I off the mark or is that no that's absolutely where i was going with that yeah i mean because in the tank, you know, they're going to crawl on the ground, okay, because they only have so much square footage in that tank to walk around, and they walk a lot. I mean, they, they will sit there for, you know, hours just walking around, looking for food, you know, you know, chuckling away, you know, like if they feel a good front coming through, and they'll start just chuckling, you know, they just keep on walking around, you know, and uh, even the females, they'll just continue to walk around. There are some times where they'll just stand still in one area for two days, but after that, they're back to the same thing where they're running laps. They're very active at night. And um, I think a lot of people don't realize that they're going to walk across that substrate. Whether I mean, I, I do recommend like leaf litter or long-fibered sphagnum moss over top the dirt. So it's less dirt, dirt particles that are going to actually possibly be somewhat abrasion uh, abrasive to their skin if that makes any sense because there are some things in the, the even the abg mix there's some things that could be a little bit coarse um and i think that's why leaf litter or new zealand sphagnum moss would be really important to put a you know at least an inch layer on top and uh i always also suggest to people too since we're going to actually start talking about food items is actually getting the bowl train which could be used with a 3.3 liter rubbermaid container folding a towel, putting it on the bottom, just ditching the lid. You're never going to use that again. And just using that to put your crickets in and clean it out every two days, you know, next to the water bowl. Because if you just release the crickets in there, a lot of the times the crickets find the water bowl before the frog finds the crickets. They're just suicidal idiots. <laughs> it's very true. They got very issues. True. Yeah. So, um, 
So I always recommend people, you know, I mean, I don't have the chance to, you know, train all my frogs when I'm, you know, in my, my facility, there's just no way it's going to happen. I mean, I'd be cleaning like 200 bowls a day, you know, or every other day. Uh, I already have that in water bowls. So no, (laughs) just simply no, I'm, you're going to have to do that on your own. Now, some of the other species like the cinnamons, the, you know, the mossies, they live mostly in water. So I do bowl train them at, before I sell them. That does make it easier on people. But with the red eyes, yeah, they're on their own. They have to do that. And it's real simple to do. Whenever you buy, this is the other thing I was going to recommend too, is whenever you're first buying your red eye tree frog, I don't care if you're buying it from me or Joe Schnell, you basically want to take a 10-gallon tank, put a towel on the bottom, moisten it, moisten the sides, Put a fresh dish of water in there. Screen top, which are going to cover like 80% to 90% of that top with like saran wrap. I always go to saran wrap because I'm really clumsy with glass. Um, and I, since I started picking up music again, I really don't want to damage my fingers any more than I have to. But <clears throat> um, it's just it's just easy because, you, you know, the saran wrap rips, you can always just put another piece on there. Um, but at the same token... You can kind of monitor how much that animal is eating while you're building your tank. Like, say you just, you know, decided to go to the show and you see the red eye, you're like, you know, I'm getting one of these and I'm just going to build a tank as I go. Well, it's a real simple way to go about that. Or there's people that say, I don't have a tank ready. Well, you're going to have to house it in a tank for at least a month, maybe maybe three weeks at, at the least, just to make sure it's eating, it's getting used to it. Because what I was going to suggest next is putting cuttings of pothos in there wrapped with... Uh, a wet paper towel over the root part. And this way it gets used to foliage because none of my animals have ever seen a leaf as I'm raising them. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that, well, if I don't get this thing back into a naturalistic setup immediately, it's going to suffer and die. But, I mean, you you raise them up completely independent about that. And I mean, I keep I keep hinting at what we're going to get to i, I, I want to get to that in, in a minute but i can't wait to get i to know that. <laughs> stay tuned i want to ask you just one more question about husbandry and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into that but we, you and i talked off air for a while about lighting and um we were talking about uva uvb and and just some of the different lighting products you started using vivtech lighting for your tree frogs and i was kind of surprised by what you experience you want to kind of tell me uh, tell the listeners about what you and i were talking about before absolutely absolutely um what i was comparing it to is the uh, uh, other bulbs uh, i don't want to mention the brand names because again i don't want to get the shaft but um i did notice though that some of the bulbs that are on the market nowadays you know the uh, compact fluorescence or even like the tubes seem to be too bright for the animals itself so with that being said is that's why a lot of the animals tend to be a little bit more shyer as they're coming out um they really are i mean some of the bulbs if they don't mix the i I think it's some kind of a a chemical inside the bulb uh trying to think of the name of it uh, uh well basically you get the gist of that i'm i don't know the chemistry of the, the actual bulb but i will say that some of them actually have been made to where they actually put out too much gamma. And that seems to be a problem with a lot of bulbs nowadays for amphibians. And we'll just say that there's a bulb called the 3.0. We'll just we'll just say this. 
um, where it's putting out 3% UVB, but it's also putting out certain UVCs that are kind of toxic to the animal, if that makes any sense to you. Whereas the VivTech bulbs show no traces of UVC under them. And at the same time, it's the spotlight. Um, it doesn't produce a lot of heat. And they're only 3 watts as opposed to 13 or 26 watts. So the way the whole economy is going as far as energy, I think that's going to be important to people as well. But um, I have noticed that ever since I did switch the actual bulbs, that the color of the animals have come out a lot more. And whether it be stress or because it's more of a naturalistic kind of UVB, I don't think I'll ever know, but they seem to do better under them is my bottom point. Yeah, my opinions towards my opinions towards stuff changes, but my opinion about UVB, UVA, etc., was kind of a function of really what like other niches in the exotics hobby made of it. Meaning, like, well, why would I want to give UVB to an animal that is lower in the lives in the forest floor does not necessarily come into a tremendous amount of of direct sunlight whatever and then the other thing was like well do i really want to expose it to a full life cycle light cycle do i want this to kind of come on gradually peak for an hour and then back off a little bit so i mean i'll admit i've always been leery of using any kind of uv uh, well uva uvb is different but really just because of like the potential risks i mean like you, you can overdose it if you're supplementing with vitamin D3 and providing too much UV, uh, UV, that could be dangerous in and of itself because you're using two products that are designed to meet the same end. I mean, you're, you're having a lot of luck with, with the VivTech, right? I mean, you've kind of got me to rethink my, my opinions of it. Oh, I, I absolutely love it. Uh, it just seems like the, like I said, I have them get above the Fialmati Subicolor and the Fialmati Subaji. And it seemed like the Sabaji would kind of stress out and turn a little dark here and there when I had the other bulbs above them. Um, right now, they're just flaming green, have like a little bit of a yellowish tint to it, meaning, uh, in, in my opinion, I think what they're trying to do is just reflect the excess back to it, but it doesn't seem to be as stressed as much. The sides of the final Medusa bicar, I have the Peruvian species where they have a lot more orange on the side. The orange is a little bit more intensified, and the green is a lot more lime green now. Um, and they seem to be growing. You know, whenever I have youngsters, they seem to be growing a little bit better now. Um, and it's just uh, all in all, it just you know, just the the room doesn't get ridiculously hot, even though Sabaji and Bicar can handle it. Because there was times when with all those lights of those those fancy lights that I'd have. It would damn get near 110 degrees in there. And I'm not kidding. You'd walk in and you just start sweating. And you're like, are the animals alive? And they surprisingly were. But it's not this potentially risking the animal's life kind of hot anymore. Um, and it just seems like they just do better. Now, I am kind of experimenting above tortoises as well. And I'm kind of like my next thing is my red eyes, where I'm going to experiment with a few of those. You know, whether it be uh, the normals, the albinos, which the albinos don't really, the albinos and the purples, I really, and the pinks rather, I really am kind of hesitant about because they don't have that pigment that could block out the UVB. Um, the, uh, 
purples and pinks and burgundies have transparency on their skin. So that's that's where I'd be kind of worried about that. Um, but uh, the normals, I'm going to try it above first. And then I am going to probably, I don't want to say sacrifice, but basically try it above a couple albinos for at least six months to see how well they do. And I run the bulbs for around eight hours instead of 12 hours. And then I have a UV or um, an LED that clicks on after that. So it still gives them the 12 hour light cycle, 12 to 14 hour light cycle. So, but I, I think it's, I think it's really important that a lot of people consider the LED UVBs now and give it a try. I mean, people, you know, were saying, and even, even Ryan was listening to me tell this one customer is, look, these bulbs last for two years. This man is willing to back it up. If this thing is like, you know, three days off from it being two years and you, you know, it doesn't show any UVB, you know, because I have a UVB meter and, you know, if it's not showing any at all, send it back and I'll replace it. Whereas some of the bulbs that we have out now only last three to six months. You're spending $25 on that bulb that you're changing every three months. So that's a hundred dollars a year, right? Where you could just do a one-time deal for $89.99 practice. I think that's what it is. 89 or 79.99, something like that. You know, because everybody's like, oh my God, those bulbs are expensive. Spend the 89 bucks instead of the hundred bucks a year. You're spending 89 bucks every two years. You savvy? Yeah, and the, yeah. the output is consistent, right? Because that was one of the other things that always deterred me to UV was just how there really isn't a lot of control over it because it's not it's not visual light. You know what I mean? Like when you have a, a, a visual light, a heat light, and it goes out, you know that it's out. Whereas it, right. unless you have a UV meter that's a good one, it's you can't really quantify how much UV is putting out or how much it isn't. And I think Correct. I remember, what's his name, the guy from VivTech? Is it Ryan? Ryan. Yeah, yes. I think I remember listening to him on another podcast talking about, and I think that he just, he, it was might have been him, it might have been him, or you know what it might have been, what's her name, Frances Baines, I think. She's a scientist who just, she did an extensive study of like UV, but anyway, in any event, whoever it was, this person got a whole bunch of different bulbs and tested them out from different manufacturers, different batches or whatnot, and they were all over the place. So sometimes the, the levels would be lethal and sometimes they would be completely non-existent at all. So for me right. on my end, it's like, like, well, it, it was like up until now, from what you're telling me, it was very, very difficult to tell how much output you were actually getting. Was it too much? Was it too little? Did it wane immediately or like what, like what was going on? So that was always like my problem with it. But I mean, these things are consistent right i mean the uv output stays consistent for the life it of the seems bulb. to be it seems to be because we we tested it about a month ago and it was was like pretty much the same you know I, and i was like well okay you know this has already been like because i started off with them in october and i've been working with them ever since so we're into like april already so in march before i actually went to the tinley show we did do a, a meter check and it seems to be now I only tested like three bulbs. I mean, I didn't test every single one of them, but uh, I was just curious because I wanted to give Ryan an update, which I never got the chance to actually talk to him at that show, at the Tinley show. But um, I actually wanted to put another order in because I got to replace the other lights that I'm trying to replace. Ever since I've done that, my my actual 
electricity bill has gone down a little bit, believe it or not. Uh, it's only went down by about 30 bucks, but hey, 30 bucks these days, I mean, that's that's a quarter tank of gas. Um, so, yeah, so, and that's in a hot acidic, by the way. Um, I, I think that a lot of people have to kind of reconsider. And I know Zoomed actually came out with one too, which I do want to try one of those out. Uh, I heard they're just as good. So we'll see. I mean, we're going to, we're going to do the light meter thing with them too. Um, but yeah, I mean, so far though, I've been really, really satisfied with VivTech. Yeah. It's something I'd like to, I, I like, I know nothing about lighting, you know, and maybe that's my problem is I'm just not familiar with it. So I always like to just kind of defer out of ignorance. You know what I mean? I'd rather not. It's like, if you don't know how to swim, you're not, you're not going to go in the water, but. Right. Yeah. And, and I understand it. And I, I'm kind of with you. I'm, I don't want to call myself an expert with lighting. Um, the only thing I'm really good with lighting as far as anything is for, is with plants. I mean, that's just because, you know, that was my main gig there for probably 10 years and actually am testing it above some plants right now. And it seems like the plants aren't burning. They're not burning. The bromeliads are turning red because I took like what's, uh, I think, well, it's a fireball basically, but I'm trying to think of the mix it's with. But it was green underneath this one light uh, that's made by Current USA, and that's because of the, the diatoms from the or whatever they're called, the the lights themselves. Uh, yeah, the diodes, I think, is what diodes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, they actually started failing after about you know about a year, and the plant went from nice bright red to its pups came out green. So put the VivTech bulb above it, and lo and behold, they're back to being red again. So I, I think a lot of people have to kind of consider the lighting a little bit more, you know, when it comes to, do I want to buy a compact fluorescent or do I want to buy a screw and LED UVB that's going to last me two years instead of replacing it every three to six months. Hands down with the energy costs alone, that's going to save you, you know, but buying bulbs every three to four months or whatever it is, that's, that's also, I'm, I'm just not into it. You know, I mean, yeah, it's peak. It's peaks my interest. Now I'm in, I mean, even let's just forget the frogs for a second. I also have a bearded dragon that I'm using supplemental UV with, but I'm, I don't want to get into the brand that I'm using and whatnot, but I mean, again, I've right. always been curious about what, what is, what's the balance here? What's, what benefit is it actually receiving? Because I don't really, I don't really know, but now that's something for, for me to explore, but. Yeah, well, the bearded dragons actually uh, not. I'm not. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I wanted to mention a friend of mine, um, actually Jared Roofing's brother, Justin Roofing, does a lot of. You know who Jared Roofing is, right? Roofing's rent mail. Yeah, we've never actually spoken, but I, I know, I know who he is. Oh yeah, you should, one of these days should actually interview him. He's got a. He's got quite the collection now. Um, but the uh, the bearded dragons that he works with, Justin works with, they're like the more high-end ones. He also works with Tagus. He works with uh, Aki's, a couple other types of monitors. Um, but his main thing is bearded dragons. That's what he's always been known for when he was breeding them. And he just produces the most brilliant stuff. And uh, he's testing the the VivTechs right now. And he says, I, I think they're working. I think they're working great. You know, the only thing he's got to still supplement is heat. You know, they still have to have a basking light. So you could actually do that with either a light or you could do that with a ceramic fixture as far as the heat. I'd go with the ceramics. Ceramics usually last longer than bulbs. 
incandescent bulbs seem to only last for like three months in this house. I don't know about yours, but my, mine lasts uh, a while. It's just I'm a visual person. I don't know. I never really trusted the ceramic heat emitters just because if it does go out, I mean, I I, I really should. You don't know, yeah. yeah but right. you know what? I, I check. I spot check. I spot check uh, temps every day. So it really isn't that much. I just, I don't know. I just, I prefer the lights, but that's just, that's just me. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as UVB though, I mean, uh, he's really having, uh, he, he's really liking the fact that the Vivtex are kind of like doing pretty good for him. He does use like other brands as well. And he's, he basically is having success with both, but he's got to replace the certain brands. Like, you know, like we've been talking every three to six months, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, and there's different grades of the actual um, VivTech bulbs. I do want to mention this. Uh, first light and uh, forest cover, I believe is what it's called. Those are the two I would use for amphibians, depending on the species, uh, but not the desert one. <laughs> okay, so I just want to clarify that before anybody actually accidentally does that. Yeah, yeah, that could be uh, <laughs> you, you could end up with a, a little strip of bacon. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I just, I want to ask. like chicken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask just one last question, then we'll get into the whole YouTube debacle. But I've heard people want to cohab red eye tree frogs with dart frogs. What's your thought on it? I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. Because you, you, here's, here's why. Here's why. And it's not because I'm worried about the red eye eating the dart frog. I'm worried about the crickets you're feeding the red eye. Say, if you're doing the bowl training, you're going to have some that get out. But at nighttime, while a dart frog is sleeping, that cricket's going to chew on that dart frog. I'm just saying that's going to happen. We've already tested out with green and blacks. And because when I first started doing this, I did a multi-species cage. I had pamilio, red eyes, and a green and blacks because they were all from the same area. You would think, oh, they'd be fine. Yeah, the crickets really were... They showed no mercy towards the darts. And, yeah, I, I was like, okay, that's that's a problem. Um, you know, so, yeah, I, I probably would not recommend it. Now, if you wanted to house, I do. I will say this. If you want to house a tree frog with a dart frog, it would be like something that eats the same size meal, like glass frogs, like Valry with any dart frog would be fine. Because they don't really require, dart frogs mostly don't require anything higher than 76, 78 anyways, which is basically the highest I would ever keep glass frogs. Well, the Valerai ones. Now, if you had Terribles, you could actually house clown tree for, as long as they're captive bred. Now, here's, here's the thing is a lot of these smaller tree frogs, you've got to get them captive bred. You know? Now, they have to be from the same area or same climate as the actual frog. That's the other thing I want to recommend. I mean, you can't put a cinnamon frog in with dart frogs. I'm it's sure, just I'm sure people have tried. <laughs> yeah, they have. That's why I'm mentioning yeah. it. Um, and the reason is, is because you have micro communities that live on the frog's skin that can actually be harmful to the other species, which that could, that could end bad, you know. Um, Plus, the, the the nightmare I heard about was they kept cinnamons in with a thumbnail species. Well, cinnamons can actually swallow a thumbnail species. So that was another nightmare. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot of a lot of fun. 
No, no. And, and I'm sitting there horrified as they're telling me about it. And I'm like, why didn't you call me and ask me or something like, cause I mean, it wasn't a normal customer, you know? And they just thought they'd try something different. And I, I, I really recommend that you keep most of your frogs separate, but yeah, I mean, it, it's like, like the Saracanensis clowns that I have. Prime example, the quarter-inch crickets. Well, so do Terribilis. Will Saracanensis eat a, a Terribilis? No. Will Terribilis eat a Saracanensis? No. So, and they both have the same requirements, you know, as far as the humidity and the temperatures. So those could probably coexist, but a red eye with a dart? No, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I just it's one of those common things that I see pop up along among beginners because everyone wants to start this huge communal tank with, or not even huge, but like a small communal tank with all these different species. And it's like, no, <laughs> I mean, if you no. do it, if you do it like you said, if you really, really figure out which, I mean, look, I'm I'm not going to do what you do. You know what I mean? You, you're capable of you, you know this stuff. This is your livelihood. I mean, for the average person, I can't imagine it really being within the like the realistic scope of the trying to mismatch species that are outside of um you know what you would normally want to put together anyway but i don't know that's just that's just my my two cents but no i get that yeah, yeah. and you're absolutely right though you're absolutely right i mean you you gotta you gotta research this stuff or talk to people who actually breed um and have been around for a while and i'm not talking about ones that just pop up out of nowhere and They've been around for a couple of months. They've got a lot of learning to do. I mean, this isn't something you learn overnight. I mean, you got to talk to somebody that's been doing this for at least five, six years at the least, because we all make mistakes. And the goal is to pass those mistakes on to people, like tell them not to do it. That, that That's what I mean by pass the mistakes. It's just, look, I've done this. It didn't go well. You know, and I think that's important also. You know, I mean, if anybody thinks, you know, that I've lost, uh, that I haven't lost frogs, boy, I mean, over the years, I mean, we've, we've lost hundreds of frogs, you know. Granted, some of them were imports, but, you know, I mean, there's been captive breads we've lost just by making one silly mistake. You learn from that, you don't do it again. Yeah. The only stupid yeah. mistake is the one you make twice. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I totally agree. And, yeah, that's that's something that uh, and like my wife calls me paranoid because, you know, she's she'll ask me to do so. You know, should I do this? I'm like, no, 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 no. We've we've, yeah. we've went through this, <laughs> even though she wouldn't remember it. It was like four or five years ago. I mean, she calls me psychotic because I remember or not psychotic. What was the word she used? Uh, um traumatized <laughs> she calls me traumatized all the time because i lost one frog due to one mistake and i don't ever want to do that again you know so uh yeah yeah no i know the feeling well while we're we're at the end that i want to get to this uh this whole debacle and i just i want to just give it some context for us so a while back i mean i'm i'm it was probably from at the, the point that this episode's coming out. It was probably a good six months ago. Um, it was the uh, you had a you had someone come to the the house, popular YouTuber. I don't, I don't know if we want to mention names or whatnot. I mean, it's it's yeah, pretty Dave, obvious. Dave Kaufman. Yeah. yeah. So Dave Kaufman came out. I mean, I'm I'm assuming we we talked about this. You know, he he wasn't out to like 
you know, give you a hard time or anything like that. But no, he, he, he showcased your, your room and your operation and how you keep your, your breeding stock. And you got a lot of criticism from people in the comments that, I mean, I, and a lot of other people I know, like looked at that and it was just, it was ridiculous because I mean, my thought was like, look, this is the man's lifestyle. This is what he does every day. And this is what he's been doing for decades. And I felt like a lot of people came out that were extremely critical of your husbandry while they had absolutely no knowledge of the rationale behind it and the fact that it actually worked. I mean, you, 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 the, the floor is yours, my friend. You, you say what you want to say about that. Well, first off, uh, I, I want to just say a shout out to everybody that stuck up for me in that. I want to say thank you. I, I do appreciate it. And two, which is probably, uh, are you sitting down? Yeah, I'm sitting down. Good, because I have never seen that video. Really? I'm not allowed to. Why? Because of the criticism on there, um, a lot of them were silly. I mean, people were reading it off to me. They're like, you're not allowed to watch, uh, listen to this dude or, or watch it because you're going to look down at the comments and you're going to see some of the people come up with the most silliest you know, gripe about what you're talking about. And I think it, what it was is that I said in the video in exact words is bioactive makes you lazy. Yeah. 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 I remember that, you know, when it comes to dart and I even said, when it comes to dart frogs game on, you could do it all day with bioactive, but if you do this with tree frogs and don't clean it, you're going to lose your tree frogs. And a lot of people got salty about that. You know, I mean, the, the the whole bioactive kick, it's nice. It's a good it's a good aspect of it, you know, uh, of a new way of doing the hobby. But it doesn't always work. And I think a lot of people don't realize that you'd have to make this cage three times the recommended size to do it bioactive and not clean it. And and the actual reality is you still would have to clean it eventually. I mean, you still have to change the water dish with a tree frog. Bioactive's not going to take care of that. You know, you still have to sanitize the water dish. Bioactive's not going to take care of that. You know, you still have to occasionally wipe down the sides, wipe the leaves down, because they do defecate on the leaves. They do uh, defecate on the glass. They shed. They leave the shed behind sometimes, because they don't always eat all of their shed. So you got to scrape it off of the razor sometimes if it's dry. So what I do is I wet it down, you know, in my bioactive setups that I do have, you know, for my smaller tree frog species, I wet down the sides really good, let it sit for five minutes, and then I wipe it dry, like wipe it clean and dry, and then I'll wet it back down again. And I do that once a week. Guess what? They're nice, plump. They breed on their on their own schedule, by the way. they they. I mean, I got Cerecmancis eggs. I didn't even rain on them. So with that being said, if an animal's breeding, it's happy. When you keep it filthy, it's not going to do anything. It's going to actually, you know, it's, it's going to decline. And I think a lot of people that came forward with the criticism don't realize that. And, and I'm not by any means saying that, you know, they're complete jackasses or anything. I, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I'm just saying that, 
it's not always right to have it as a bioactive and not clean it. That's all I was saying. That's all I was saying. Yeah. And I, you know, knowing you and having spoken to you, and even if I hadn't known you, and even if I had seen the video, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, that's what I don't understand is I, this is, this is my, my thought process behind this is somewhere along the lines, people got the idea that the dart frog mode, the dart frog mode, the bioactive dart frog mode. I said it three times. I don't know if I did that, but, um, <laughs> that's for good the, luck. Yeah. That's, that's somehow is the, the standard mode for the majority of species that aren't arid. And I've seen people apply the principle in situations where it isn't perfect. Whereas dart frog husbandry is what it is because it's it's been established for a long time. I mean, I was talking to, when I had Devin Edmonds on a while back, he was talking to me about pictures of vivariums in the Netherlands in the 70s that were fully planted and whatnot. So that mode has worked for that group of species for a long time. But it's not going to yeah. work for every other type of species just because it's 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 a frog or or a snake or whatever and i feel like a lot of people made that like the the default a definition of proper care and it, it doesn't fit in every situation just like you said well you you covered it before believe it or not you actually covered everything about tree frogs that a lot of people don't realize is they're not on the floor they're not constantly by their own fecal matter. They just walk away. The rain r- rinses it off, you know, so there's constantly a fresh leaf because it's it's raining. It's literally raining. So that means something's cleaning those leaves off. You know, if, if it didn't rain and the humidity was high enough to where they could stay alive, which we're, we're kind of going to the fantasy world on this, but I'm just I'm trying to prove a point here. So basically, think of all those frogs defecating. Then you have birds defecating and all that stuff just collecting on leaves and leaves and leaves. Eventually, those animals are going to come down with something. Now, that's the same thing in a tank. It doesn't rain in a tank unless it's a rain chamber. You know, I mean, you can mist all you want, but a mist is not going to knock down fecal matter, shed. Uh, it's not going to completely rinse off urine, you know, the urates. And the urates are will look very toxic and the peptides from the skin are very toxic the, to the fecal is going to become very toxic and if you ever seen the, the one person i guess commented that i should keep all my bio bicolor i should know better than to keep them on paper towels they should be on bioactive if they seen the tootsie roll that a bicolor leaves behind bioactive is going to take forever to break that down no matter how many isopods you have in there you know i mean it's going to take a long time and there's still going to be some residue or, res- or rev- remnants of that fecal matter in there as nitrogen, you know, and you got to spot clean once in a while. You got to, you got to wipe the leaves down. You got to, you got to keep your amphibians clean, you know, your, your tree frogs, especially. And, you know, maybe I'm making it sound out like it's more work than it is, but you know what? I truly believe that in the rainforest, they're not coming across their own crap. I mean, I can't imagine <laughs> any animal would want to, Oh, unless it's a dog. Sometimes dogs are into that, but I I can't imagine anything wanting to to stick around in that. I mean, like I said before, the the the, the dar frog mode works. It works for dar frogs because you've got 
animals that live in leaf litter, they live in that area where everything from up above falls. That's where, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but what's they that expression? They handle the bacterial loads. Yeah. I mean, what's that expression? You know, S-H-I-T doesn't travel uphill. So <laughs> certain species of frog are, are, any animal is better equipped to handle its environment. So, I mean, it's, a, it's the same thing. Like, would you take, would you take a bird? Would you take a, um, I'm trying to give a good example. All right, for example, owls, okay? There's an owl where I work, and I run into it a couple of times a year, and it leaves pellets. It leaves owl pellets. They, they fall out of the tree on the ground. It's never actually coming into contact with it because it's not, by and large, coming to the ground that often. If it is, it's sure it's not going near the pellets. So it's the same thing with the tree frogs. All the waste they produce is being washed away and falling to the ground. It's never coming into contact with them. So why would you put something underneath them that would just encourage whatever is on there to grow because they might not necessarily be equipped to handle it anyway. Absolutely. And uh, another thing I always point out too is like, you know, when you, when you put the, the long fibered sphagnum moss, like say in New Zealand on the bottom around the plants and all that, I always tell people, I says, even though it's bioactive, peel that off and put a fresh layer down every month. Because this way it doesn't harbor as much bacteria. You, same thing with using real wood in a tank is not a good idea for tree frogs because it's basically a petri dish for bacteria and fungal and mold and all this other stuff. Whereas dark frogs can handle that. You know, they're by that all the time on the ground. You know, whereas tree frogs are up in the canopy, like we were just talking, UVC and UVA and all that, and UVB always sterilize all that. It keeps all the molds and funguses at bay. So, yeah. I mean, it makes better sense to keep them clean like that. Now, keeping them on a paper towel and water dish, yeah, it doesn't sound like the most luxurious thing to do, but it keeps them clean and problem-free. You know, I, I got enough crap going on in my life, you know. I, I don't need, you know, my animals to start to suffer. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the worst thing that I took out of it was, I mean, there was some, like, really, like, you know, hokey-pokey comments in there. And like people, you know, why isn't there any wood here? And why, why is it PVC purchase? And this person only cares about the business aspect of it. And it's like, what are you comparing this to? You know what I mean? How do you think these things are bred? How do you think that they are able to be produced in captivity? How do you think that that happens? Yeah, well, it's like a I fantasy. will say this, though, is I did take the PVC purchase out of there. Because I knew Dave wanted to pick them up and all that stuff. And whenever they go in those PVC perches, I don't like to pick them up afterward too much because they, once they're comfortable, they're comfortable. You know, I don't want to stress it out. But once on the ground, it's easier to pick up. It's not grabbing it and holding on for dear life to the paper towel. It's just, okay, I'm, I'm getting picked up. Whereas, yeah, it is good to have PVC things in there. And I usually do. Um, I didn't even see that comment or else I probably, well, see the, I haven't seen the damn video, not allowed to, but point is, is yeah. I mean, PVC is good for like some of the monkey frogs, like the Savage or the actual bicolors and all that. So yeah, that, that right there, I'll give them. But as far as real wood, I'd never use real wood inside of a, a tree frog cage. Not unless it was something that could handle the dinginess like mossies or, or cinnamons. I mean, I was throw cork bark in there. Well, that's a wood product. Um, I actually do throw it in with my Saracenensis because they are found like by the most disgusting bogs on the planet. So I figured, okay, well they can handle that. But tree frogs, you know, like red eyes, are not by bogs like that unless they're breeding. And even when they're breeding, I'm not sticking a piece of wood in there. 
You you raised a good point before about when, when we were talking about the the people cohabbing different species of frogs together, about the different bacteria that is endemic to the skin of dirt, certain species. Yeah, the micro communities. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So certain species are going to have one type of community and certain species are going to have another. I mean, that I'm going to assume that that's probably going to influence how they're able to tolerate certain other bacteria, meaning if an animal is, is used to coming, I mean, like my, my Theliodurma, my, um, my mossy frogs, I mean, they, they are capable of living in these like disgusting conditions. I mean, there's species of frogs whose tadpoles are like obligate fecal eaters. I think it's, I think like the Borneo eared frog, I can't remember the scientific name for it, but they lay their eggs in, in tree hollows and the, the tadpoles eat, they eat crap for lack of a better word. So you got to ask yourself, is something that is biologically different from another species? I mean, how, how is that going to affect it? You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. Oh, there's other, there's other things too, like the, uh, rack of forest, uh, Ryan Ward. I will give you use that as an example. Blue, uh, blue web glider frogs. Um, they lay their eggs above uh, rice paddy fields. Okay, well, what do they use in the water of the rice paddy fields? Cow manure and chicken manure. So right there, you're adding E. coli and salmonella to the mix. So they come out of the water. They have it on their skin. It actually lives on their skin because when they import them, they're testing positive for both of those. Which is also why they die a lot of the time, too, by the way, when they come in imported. Uh, so the only thing you could treat them with is ciprofloxin. And, or I forget the other one, but there's another medication that you can use that a vet was recommending. Um, and both of them can be used as a fish medication as well. You can buy fish medication as a ciprofloxin. Um, it's funny because that's the same thing they used to, peep, uh, to treat people for anthrax back in 2001 or uh, 2000 or whatever it was. But, um, you know, ciprofloxin is the only thing that's going to cover that. But you're right. I mean, it's it's like a lot of people don't realize that that could actually tox out the same animal that it's on, too, if there's too much of it. You know, I mean, I mean, it's it just one of those things where I'm like, just keep your amphibians clean. Just good frog 101. You know, it's, it's like your fish tank. You're not going to let the nitrates build up to the point where they're going to die, right? You got to do water changes. Well, you got to clean the frog tank. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, the thing that bought, really bothered me the most. Look, I'm a regular guy. I'm not an expert on anything. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, out of nowhere, you had all these frog experts coming out of the woodwork to weigh in on a short video based on what expertise I have. And I even saw a couple of people get called on in the comments, you know. And the thing that bothered me the most is just the fact that people can't be willing to accept the fact that someone might know more than them. You know what I mean? It's almost like people, especially in this this whole animal world, I guess it's just like everything else. Look, there's always going to be someone who knows more than you, someone who's refined it, someone who has a better way of doing things that's effective. I mean, even from what you told me before, you, dude, you care about these things. You put your whole life into these things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not just a business. It's a responsibility. Yeah. 
I don't think people realize that. And that's that's the part that I was getting irked about just by hearing about the comments. It's like, wait a minute, you even realize what that would do to it. You yeah. know, I, I just I, I don't get the thinking, you know, I mean, and, you know, the fact that they were like comparing me to like a typical business. Oh, this is all about money. Well, you know, if it was all about money, I have a bunch of dead animals. I mean, hands down, I mean, not not every business that does this um, is all business is what I'm getting at. You know, I, I just don't understand. I mean, if there's a particular love that you have for the animals, you have to sit there and actually give a crap about what you're doing, no pun intended. But the thing is, is a, a lot of people don't realize is what an amphibian actually needs. Like certain amphibians have more needs than others is what I was kind of getting at. And I don't think a lot of people accepted that. They just got mad because I said it makes them lazy, lazy, you know. And I I tried to to explain why but apparently people didn't really want to take that to heart they just wanted to hear the first part and be offended by it and i think that's the other problem we have too is a lot of people in this hobby don't have you know where they kind of look at something and they hear the criticism but they don't look at that side and see why why that actually could possibly be true you know and I'll be honest with you. I mean, even though I've been doing this for close to 30 years with different reptiles and amphibians, I still have a lot to learn. I still have a lot that I have. I mean, like when I went down to Costa Rica, I learned more about red-eyed tree frogs and ibricadas and all these other frogs that I've seen in the wild than I've ever known. I thought I knew a lot, not you know, to the point where I was like, oh, I'm a know-it-all. I know everything. But I was like, I thought I knew enough to where I could kind of like, you know, say, you know what, I'm pretty good. I don't need any more knowledge. You know, I mean, I, I think I'm good for now. But in true fact, you're always going to learn about these animals one way, shape or form and find a different way of doing it better. And now there are certain people that are saying that miracle Grow is safe for amphibians. I don't get the thinking of that. I don't even want to get. Yeah, I don't, I don't even want to get into that. That's a whole other. Like, that's a whole. That's, that's a whole. whole other thing. That's that's yeah, another show entirely. <laughs> we can spend hours on that one, but I'm just saying, there's that. That's what I mean. Is like there are some people that actually believe things like of that sort, where it could be wrong. You know, I mean, and I, I personally think it's wrong, but that doesn't mean that he's right on other things. I don't. I don't want to get into that, but. It's just the point I'm trying to prove is like everybody has a different way of doing things. And if it's successful with them, then I guess work with it. But don't expect everybody else to follow suit with it. And I understand that. But when it comes to like, you know, the health of the animal and keeping them clean, I really seriously, sincerely believe that bioactive is not always the best way unless you're actually in there cleaning it. So, I don't know. Like I said, I, I I tried to be nice about that whole thing by not going and actually watching it because I definitely would go look at the comments and I definitely would have said something. I probably would have gotten out of hand with it because I had, did earn the name Deadpool in Chicago um, with the sarcasm. So, I stayed away from that. I well, stayed away from it. And my wife was proud of me. <laughs> you, you, you did you did the right thing. You, 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 I did. you did the right yeah. thing. I it's mean, stripping there, to the level, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and there were people that just stood up for you. I mean, I don't, I don't have a YouTube presence, but I read the comments, and it some of them were deleted later on or removed. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if that was something that Dave Kaufman did or I, I don't, I don't know the man. I, I can't, yeah, I don't even know anything about that. I, I can't, I can't comment on it cause I, I don't know anything, but I, I had looked at it when it first came out and I saw a lot of that negativity. And then I saw a lot of people reply in your defense. And then I saw a lot of the negative comments just disappear. How that happened. I, I really don't know, but um, I think you can actually delete your own comment on uh, YouTube. I believe so. I, I'm not quite sure. And I, I, I have no knowledge of YouTube, so I, I'm just taking, I'm spitting at this. So maybe, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I know you could do it on Facebook. I know you could do it on a couple other yeah. things, you know, social medias. You could delete your own comment. Um, but I don't know. If, I mean, it's probably possible you could do it on YouTube as well. Or maybe Dave did take it down. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not allowed to ask. <laughs> like I said, <laughs> you, didn't, is you, that? You, you didn't, you didn't miss much, you know, but no. I mean, from, from, from just look. I understand and respect what you do. You have a, a method that you've refined over a long time. It works. You know what I mean? I just don't, it bothers me when you work and this is applies to everything. It, it's, it's, I'll finish this and then I'll shut up, but you work very, very hard. <laughs> you work very, very hard to develop a skill, a talent, a business, whatever it is. You fuel that with knowledge. You invest time, money, experimentation, refining, and figuring out what works. And the results are the proof of that. And I think that there's a lack of humility out there when people just can't admit to themselves that they're not an expert on everything. You know what I mean? Do I know anything about red-eye tree frogs? Very, very little. Honestly, I've learned more from you in the past hour and a half, two hours, whatever, than I've ever known in my whole life. Just because I know how to keep dart frogs doesn't mean that I'm an expert on red-eyed tree frogs. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing. Like I just, if there's that many experts out there on how to breed frogs, why aren't there hundreds and more thousands frogs. of frog breeders in the market? Why is it only the same group of people who were successful at it and can pull it off? That that's my well, that's, that's my that's, problem. I didn't really think about that, but yeah, I mean, there there's certain people that have been around for years. I mean. Heck, you got Patrick Neighbors, you got, you know, a bunch of people, you know, it's just, uh, they've been around for years, they've done it, they've, they've made the mistakes too, I mean, everybody has, you know, I mean, and, um, you know, we learn from those mistakes, pass them on to people, and, and uh, just come up with the best method we can, and I think, uh, you know, we still got a lot to go, we still got, a, you know, a lot more to learn, Um I mean, even like, you know, talking with uh, Mark from uh, Amphibian Foundation, you know, I mean, his, sometimes he'll call me up and ask me questions and we'll spitball back and forth on stuff that I don't even know. And we'll go over like, you know, where are they from? What are their temperature parameters? You know, that kind of thing. And we'll kind of like spitball back and forth to come up with a happy medium where the animal will do well. And it, it chances are it usually does, you know, but there's still more to learn about that animal is what I'm getting at, you know, and. And I think that, like you were saying, like these people that have never been around it or only have done a little bit of it, they still have a lot more to learn as well. You know, I don't even know everything about them, you know, I mean, compared to what I want to know. But I don't live in Costa Rica or Brazil or anything like that. So um, I've just, like I said, you, you, when you actually asked me the podcast any other time, you know, any time, you know, I just give the best of my knowledge. And I, I just try and help whoever it is that's having a rough time with something. And maybe, it, you know, hopefully it helps. 
That's all I can do. Well, that's the other thing. There's no shame in asking for help. There's no shame in saying, look, I, I don't know something. Let me find someone who does and let me get the answer. You know what I mean? Don't don't ask, don't answer the question before you've even asked it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, how do you think I learned all this? I asked questions. I read books. I, re- I went on the internet. I mean, if you don't ask questions or, or, you know, do the research, you're, you're never going to know it. And, you know, what little is out there, at least learn from that, and maybe you can adapt a little bit, you know, as you go. But, um, you know, like the AJ Kalasai, you know, I mean, for years I would sit on the phone with him for hours. We'd just sit there and spitball back and forth, you know, on different ways of keeping dart frogs and different tree frogs. And, you know, oh, I had this success with this. Have you have you tried this? You know, I mean, so, you know, we, we would just come up with temperature parameters, water, you know, quality, you know, just go back and forth. I mean, because a lot of it you couldn't find in books. You know, we had to figure this stuff out on our own. And that's that's the best part about this hobby is like people actually coming together instead of actually criticizing each other. You know. Yeah. Well, that's 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 a good thing, you know. Yeah. You know. Some of it, like I said, is a little wow. But uh <laughs> we'll get we'll get we'll get to that some other time. Yeah, you know? that's a whole that's, we'll have that's... a roast on that guy or something, you know. We'll mention his name, we'll just roast him. <laughs> yeah, you know? I, I don't I, I, I don't wanna I my attitude is this. It's like look, if I'm gonna comment on something or whatnot, I, I like to be as objective as possible you know what i mean i like to see everything and whatnot and um i i know what you're talking about and that's a whole other i don't <laughs> yeah i mean you can't come uh, off as a jerk i mean you gotta you, i mean th- there might be an actual good point behind it that's that's the thing yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. you know i mean, I, I see where you're going with that and it's yeah. true it's true it's absolutely true i mean you you can't be some kind of well some of these some of these guys are kind of like an e- egotistical elitist uh, and I feel bad for when they start badgering some of these people that are fairly new, you know, it's like the new people, I, I kind of like, you know, I, I actually don't criticize them when they ask me questions because the only dumb question is one you don't ask, you know, and, and it's, that's the thing is if people want to know things that, you know, or, you know, from my experience, it's always best to pass that on rather than criticize them saying, you know, cause there's, there's literally groups that I've been on and watching, you know, people that have bred, you know, green and black dart frogs. They think they know it all. And they're badgering somebody on how they actually keep their, their monkey tree frogs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, look, I started this show in part, honestly, in majority, cause I had questions. I wanted to know more about this. And it, that's why I started the show. Because look, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not an expert. I mean, I have a fair amount of experience. I do things, but there's a lot. I've learned more from doing this show than I have, than I would have had I not done it. You know what I mean? And it's because I had, I had questions. You know what I mean? And people reaching out to people like you, you know, Mark Mandika, um, any of the scientists that I have on the show, uh, you know, a- anybody. I Even love- Troy, Troy, Troy is phenomenal. Yeah, you know yeah. What I mean. You know, it's the thing is like, you know, and he's willing to share. I mean, that's the thing is you got to be willing to share rather than criticize. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I, 
I envy you because you probably have way more knowledge of everything out there that I do because you get to actually come face to face with some of these guys that are truly experts. And, you know, I mean, you probably, like you said, have learned more from that, from doing the podcast than if you were to read a book. I, I try, you know, it's, um, it, it's, 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 it's always learning experience. I, I always, I mean, I say this at the end of the episode, but I always pick up something new and my hope is just that the listeners will learn something too, you know? And, and I, I know it's true. Look, I, I, I speak to listeners. I, I get listener feedback from some, not everybody, but from some people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just, I like to provide something where, you know, maybe I'll be the, the person who asks the questions and whoever I have on gives the answers. And that's really the only purpose for it. Well, the best part about it is you get the spot on questions. You know, the most frequent questions all the way to some that are kind of like, you know, uh, what's the baseball term I want to look for? Uh, you know, something that's like really out, of, out there. Out of left field? Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. that you just didn't expect. And, and but there's still a popular question, believe it or not. You know, yeah. uh, the only one that I'm thankful you didn't ask me is, uh, can I keep a crested gecko in with a milk frog? <laughs> You know, I mean, I understand that they don't know any better, but you can only yeah. hear that so many times before your hair starts to go gray. You know? <laughs> but I mean, again, you know, this is this is the point of you have to if, if you're going to be in the field and you're going to be doing the shows and you're going to be, you know, one of those breeders. And you want to try and support the hobby as much as possible. you got to educate people, no matter how foolish some people may think the question is or. How many times you're sick and tired of hearing it? You still have to answer that question the best of your ability. And, uh, you know, that's that's one thing that, you know, like I said, you hit some of those questions that are most frequently asked. And hopefully somebody learns from that. You know, I mean, maybe they can go further with it. That's the best part. You know, I mean, I'm getting older. I'm not going to be doing this forever. So somebody's going to have to, you know, like take that torch of whoever's doing what. Like say if they specialize in Pamilio and they just keep on learning about him, and all of a sudden the guy that does the, the main guy that does Pamilio, he's no longer around because he's retired from it or something, you know, unfortunately happens to him. Whatever, you know, that knowledge is now stopped right there until somebody actually keeps going for, forward with it. And uh, you know, I mean, hopefully I could be an influence like that. You know, not some just rambling fool in a on a, on a phone, you know? Yeah. No, but, no, uh, I, I, I look, I always learn something new when I talk to you. So. And we always have a good conversation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I always give you extra overtime too. Cause I know, I know we're going to cover a lot, but, um, well, it's like the saying goes, why did God invent Irish people? So everybody else has somebody to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we're, we're at the end and, um, we, we got on overtime, but just real quick, uh, how can people find you? I think you just on you're on Facebook, right? You have a new page. I have a new page. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because Facebook actually took my main account down that was connected to my Rainforest Junkies page. I'm sorry, RainforestJunkies.com page. That's still up, but they took my page down because I shared the U.S. Arc post. They said it was against their community standards. <laughs> I'm, I'm not yeah. even going to touch that. I, I'm, I'm not even going to touch that. We'll be the here only thing night. I could say to that is, Elon, would you please buy Facebook? <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> if you're so for free speech. 
but yeah, regardless, I mean, it's just one of those things where now I have a new page. Uh, I do have a Facebook page. It's uh, the first thing you see is a bubblegum red eye on the icon uh, or whatever they call it, the avatar. Um, and then uh, I do have a rainforestjunkies.com page. It has the price list on there. And I really got to update that availability because I'm really low on stock and a lot of it. I'm even out of a lot of the stock. Uh, I am going to be upgrading it to where I'm going to be putting pictures and care sheets on there now that we have a little bit more time. Um, but uh, for the most part, you can see me at the Cleveland show, uh, which is once a month. You could see me at the Hamburg show, except I will not be at the June Hamburg show or the August Hamburg show. Um, and then, of course, both of the Tinley Park shows. You know, it's actually where I meet a lot of people uh, that hear your podcast and actually watch Dave Kaufman's video. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, believe it or not, you're actually reaching all the way out to Chicago. That's that's good to hear. I'm, I'm, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but, yeah, I mean, that's that's the way people can reach me. And, um, you know, if I PM them, say, call me on the phone, because I just, not only do I not like getting on Facebook that much, but the messenger doesn't usually give me the message until two days later sometimes, if that makes any sense to you. I don't know why that does that, but... Um, yeah. And email, forget about it. Don't even, don't, don't, just don't, <laughs> just don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I hate technology. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, everyone, I want to thank Mike again for coming back and doing the show. I know it's, um, every, every time I have Mike on, we always have a lot of fun. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. I know the red eye tree frog topic is something I've, I like to cover periodically and, um, Always love hearing Mike's expertise and hope you guys enjoyed it. I know we covered a lot of ground tonight. So, yeah, other than that, catch up with you guys again soon.